First Peter is, is toward the end of the Bible. As you begin to open it up and go through the books of the New Testament, it's toward the end. And we are finishing up this morning our study of First Peter that's been going for the, for the past 11 weeks. And so this will finish it up. We'll look at the end of chapter 5 and then we'll move toward Easter uh, next week. A couple of things I wanted to say about Easter Sunday as we get ready for next week. Most of you in your worship guide or your bulletin would have gotten a little card like this that says Game of the King and says Easter Sunday service and gives the time and and that sort of thing. We give you this card not wanting you to keep it during the week because we assume that you'll remember Easter is next week, but we want you to give this card away. Use this card to invite family members, friends, neighbors, however you would like to use it, coworkers, whatever is appropriate and the Lord leads you in your situation, this card is for you to give away to someone, to invite them next week for the service. And as you exit the doors and leave this morning, there are extra cards available. So if you say, hey, I can think of two or three people that I would like to invite to come next week uh, on Easter, pick up some of these cards and use them for that reason. And then as well, as you're leaving, we have these green cards to invite people to come to the Easter egg hunt. And so both of these are are to be used. As we think about Easter next week, a couple of things to keep in mind. First, if you can, resist the urge to park as close to the building as possible. Let's save the good parking spaces for, for people who might be visiting. Same thing goes for your seat. I know you love your seat, you know, you, you identify your seat, but if you can do your best to, uh, to scoot in next week and, and provide room for guests who are coming, out this top door as we go out this direction and as well this bottom door this direction, we have TV screens up on the wall, overflow areas for parents who need to go out with babies or toddlers. But you never know, because of the way spring break falls around here, you never know how a crowd is going to work on Easter Sunday. But if we do get very crowded in here, we're going to have overflow seating out that direction as well as over in the multi-purpose building. And so if you would give preference to to our guests, we always want to do that, but especially next week, and and do whatever it takes uh, to resist the urge to say anything about someone if that is their only time that they come to church during the, during the year. I know it's easy, you know, we have all the little funny things that we say, but let's not forget, it takes a lot of courage for someone to walk into a church building if they haven't been there in a long time or if they've never been there. You think of the first time that you got back into church or the first time that you went there. That takes a lot of courage. That's, that's not easy to do. And so let's be aware of that. Um, and, and so no, no comments, no jokes, just nothing but love and, and preference and care for people who are, are visiting with us next week and praying that God's spirit would move there. So we've been going through the book of 1 Peter leading up to Easter. And, and 1 Peter is such a good picture of what it means to be a Christian. This idea that God's power and God's love and God's hope are seen in Jesus Christ. And as God takes our lives, not just to make us better people, but he takes us in our sin and he forgives us of that sin through Jesus and makes us new. And so we begin to live this new holy life. 
except for the fact that this new life that we've been called to live, we have to live in the midst of a world that is opposed to God. And we have to live out that life in the midst of a world where we face suffering and we face difficulty and we face social embarrassment. And so First Peter says, you know what, here's how you do that. Here's how you live this holy, transformed life at your job, in politics, in your family, in everything that you do. No matter what you face, this is how you're going to do it. And so we come to the end this morning, and there are two things that the end of 1 Peter teaches us about being Christian. And and I get extra preacher points because they both start with W. Warfare and worship. Being a Christian means warfare and being a Christian means worship. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 12 through 14, Peter wraps up the letter. He says, by Silvanus, I mean, this letter was probably delivered by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. I have written briefly to you. Now, granted, that's a pastoral briefly. You know, your idea of briefly and the audience and my idea of briefly are two different ideas. And so Peter's written for five chapters, but he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, Babylon is probably a code word for Rome. She who is at Rome or Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. We don't take that literally, just just, uh, metaphorically. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So as we come to the end of the study of what it means to be Christian, I want us to see two realities. First, Christians will face temporary warfare. We're not playing a game. We're in the middle of a war. And and this is going to overflow into what we talk about next week. But but we are at war. There is an adversary seeking to destroy the work of God and the people of God. He's an adversary who has already been defeated, but he continues to battle. He continues to try to cause trouble. He continues to try to destroy people's lives. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And so what we have to remember is that we are in the middle of a spiritual war. We are facing spiritual warfare. Now, when you think about this idea of spiritual warfare, most of the time our minds go to demons, they go to exorcisms, they go to all of these strange ideas that we encounter. Usually on spiritual warfare, people will go to one of two extremes. Either they'll become obsessed and they'll find demons behind every rock, or they'll say, that's foolish, those things don't exist, why are you worrying about that? Just, just, it, it's not that big of a deal. And so what we find in Scripture is the reality is actually somewhere in between. 
It's the reality that there may not be a demon behind every bush, but we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare. That there is an adversary, an enemy, wanting to destroy our lives, wanting to destroy the work that God is doing in our lives and and among us. Uh, This past week in the Seacoast Echo, there was a story about some possible ghosts that uh, operate in downtown Bay St. Louis. And so one of our one of our buildings over on 2nd Street has been investigated a couple of times for, for the possibility of ghosts. Ghosts don't come to our house because our kids are up all night anyway. And so they're always waking up, going back to sleep, waking up, going back to sleep. So the ghosts just waste their time um, with that. But uh, we, we hear something about ghosts and we think, oh, that's just silly. That's just foolish. And sometimes that idea gets carried over to the idea that there is a spiritual war and we think, That's ridiculous. That doesn't happen. There's no devil. There's no enemy. Except that scripture is very clear here. Verse verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil. The devil, sometimes known as the devil, sometimes known as the enemy, sometimes known as Satan. Let's, Let's see a couple of things that we need to know about the devil right here. I know it strikes you, oh man, what's he talking about? What are we talking about the devil? Let's just pick out a couple of realities that Scripture teaches us here. First, if you look down in verse 9, it says, resist him. That word him gives it a personal idea. And so when we're talking about spiritual warfare, when we're talking about an adversary or an enemy, we're not talking about a force. We're not talking about a Star Wars reality here. We're talking about a personal being. And so when we talk about the devil, or we talk about saying, we're not talking about a person, but we're talking about a personal being. The Satan, the devil, is a created being, created by God, so not like God. It's not this dueling conflict between two equal forces. The devil... And, and his, his followers who are opposed to God are created beings, but they're not just this random force that is out there like a magnetic force. They're given a personal quality. It says to resist him. The second thing it says, or, or it says before that, but it says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And so we have this idea that the devil is there with one purpose, And that is to destroy our lives. Sometimes that destruction happens through sin. Sometimes that destruction happens through bad things that happen in in our life and it overwhelms us. Sometimes that destruction happens because we just pretend that life is a game and just go about it however we want. But the enemy, the devil, is out to destroy us. And it says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, what's the big deal about Satan being called a lion here? Well, the reality is that just before these verses, at the beginning of chapter 5, when Peter was talking to the leaders, he said that he wanted the leaders to shepherd the flock. And so he's just been talking about sheep. Now, what happens to a group of sheep when a lion shows up? Would you know that I I had a great idea this week? I was going to find a YouTube video of a lion showing up to a a group of sheep. (laughs) One small problem. They're all pretty graphic uh, when that that happens. So uh, 
I didn't want Debbie to answer a bunch of phone calls this week about why the preacher showed a video of a lion destroying a group of sheep. But uh, if you want to Google or, or look on YouTube, you can see some lions attacking sheep. And so, but the idea that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, we are like sheep, the flock of, of God. And so when the lion shows up, the sheep scatter. That's the first thing that happens. When Satan begins to come and bring influence and, and, and bring destruction among a group of people, hopefully it brings us closer together to care for one another. But you know what often happens when someone's facing spiritual warfare? The people that they need the most end up going the other direction. The sheep too often scatter when the lion shows up, and that should not be the case with us. When the lion shows up, we should remember that there is a shepherd who cares for his sheep, and we are going to stick together in times like that. Here's the other interesting thing about this reality. It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, Satan, when he's described in Scripture and the way that he works, he's usually described in, in one of two strategies. Either he's sneaking around, trying to scheme or find a plan to sneak up on, so you can think of a lion trying to sneak up on a group of sheep. But it says here that he prowls around like a roaring lion. When a lion roars, it's not trying to sneak up on anything. I don't know a lot about animals, but I do know that. When the lion roars, he's not trying to sneak up on anybody. What's he doing? He is showing his power and hoping that that power will so scare the enemy, will so scare these prey that he's going after, that they'll freeze and he'll be able to attack. Sometimes when Satan shows up in our life, and, and when we're facing the enemy, sometimes it will be a very sneaky attack. At other times, it will be an in-your-face roar. And most likely what Peter is talking about here is he is talking about the physical suffering the opposition that these people are facing because of their faith. And Satan is roaring at them in this pain, in this social embarrassment that they're facing, in this opposition they're facing, hoping that because of that, he will be able to destroy them. There may have been times in your life that you have faced such intense suffering, such intense pain, such intense embarrassment, such intense opposition that you knew that the enemy wasn't trying to sneak up on you, he was simply roaring in your face. Why does that happen? What, what, are, what are the reasons that he would do that? Well, I gave you two on the notes, but, but, but the first is doubt. The first reason would be doubt. He wants to create doubt in the minds of God's people. At least I hope I put it on the notes. I thought about it anyway. But uh, the idea that when Satan roars, we will begin to doubt God's power and God's goodness, and we will begin to think that maybe this enemy is more powerful than God. Now, it sounds even strange to say that, but think about the number of people. Think about the number of times that something really bad and difficult has happened in our lives, and we've said, well, maybe God isn't really good. And maybe God really doesn't care about me. And maybe God really isn't active in this situation. And so when Satan roars, one of the things that can come into our lives is this idea of doubt. When Satan was approaching Adam and Eve, he came at Adam and Eve with this idea of, did God really say? Is God really good? 
Is God really going to be able to give you the life that you need, the life that he's promised to you? And so when Satan attacks, when the enemy attacks, one of the results of that is we begin to doubt God's goodness. And we begin to doubt God's power. And you may have people in your family. You may have people at your workplace. It may be your story this morning that you've begun to doubt God's power. And you've begun to doubt God's goodness because of the opposition that you're facing in your life. And we're going to see what the result of that is. We're going to see how we respond to that in just a minute. So doubt is one possible response. The second is distraction. Remember that story, if you had a chance to to hear some Bible stories in Vacation Bible School or something like that, there's a story in the Gospels and the stories about Jesus in the New Testament where Jesus is walking on water and he comes up near the boat and Peter sees Jesus walking on water. And so what does Peter do? He gets out of the boat and he begins to walk toward Jesus on the water until what happens? He sees the storm. He becomes distracted by the intensity of this storm, and he looks at the storm instead of looking at Jesus, and then what begins to happen? He begins to sink. When Satan, when the enemy shows up in our life and begins to attack us, sometimes we doubt, and sometimes we're just distracted. We stop focusing on Jesus, and we start focusing on whatever this problem is in our life. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you had a person who was opposing you and causing problems in your life, causing problems in your family, and what happens? Your mind becomes so enmeshed with that problem that all you think about is this person causing you problems, and you stop thinking about the Lord. You've been attacked, you're facing this opposition, and instead of dwelling on God's goodness, you start just constantly cycling over in your mind the difficulty that you're facing with this other person. When Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, we will be tempted to doubt God's goodness, and we will be tempted to become distracted from Jesus, and we'll start to look around at all these other things. So, what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, Peter tells us right here, verse 9. Well, actually, let's get back to verse 8. The first thing he says is be sober-minded, be watchful. In other words, pay attention. When Satan is prowling around, when he is seeking to oppose us, that's not the time to be distracted. That's the time to wake up and pay attention. When you're going through your week kind of just in this hazy fog, and then Satan shows up in your life, you're not going to be well-prepared to resist that attack. You're more likely to take that in. Peter says, wake up. Pay attention. You're not playing a game in this life that you've been given. There's a spiritual war going on around you. Wake up. Pay attention. Verse 9. Resist him. Resist him, standing firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what we see here is that when Satan shows up, it's not this old, the devil maybe do it idea. We're we're not forced to go along with his plans or his opposition. We are to resist him. We are to stand firm in our faith and what we already know to be true about God. And we're to remember, you're not in this alone. You're not in this by yourself. 
What's the worst thing about going through pain in your life? One of the worst things is the feeling of isolation. Nobody else is facing what I'm facing. Nobody knows what I'm dealing with. You think about your marriage. You think about your family. You think about your health. You look at your life and you say, nobody else knows what I'm dealing with. Nobody can understand the pain that I'm facing right now. And yet Peter reminds us in this text that you have a brotherhood. You have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who even though their situation is not exactly yours, they are sharing in sufferings. And many who are sharing in sufferings just like yours. If you're dealing with opposition in your life, if you're dealing with pain in your life, suffering in your life, and you think for a minute nobody could understand, I'm all by myself in this, God's word says that's a lie. You are not all by yourself. You are not all alone. He is present in your life, and on top of that, he has given us a body. He has given us a body of Christ that we're supposed to draw on in those times of difficulty. And one other thing that I want you to see about this opposition from Satan, look down in verse 10. It says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. The phrase that I want to focus on is at the beginning of verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. Notice that the scope, that the time of suffering, that the time of spiritual opposition is limited. Sometimes when we're going through pain, when we're going through difficulty, what does it feel like? This is never going to end. I'm never going to get through this. But God's word is very clear here that the scope of opposition, that the scope of suffering is limited. The time will come when it will come to an end and God will bring a restoration. What we need to remember as believers, as Christians, is that we live between the times. I've got a graph or or a picture I want to show you up here on the screen. We live between the times. The bottom line there is what Scripture at times will call this present evil age. It's the age of opposition to God. It began at the fall when Adam and Eve were opposed to the plans of God and turned against Him in sin, and we entered a time known as the fall. And it will extend all the way until that blue box ends with the second coming of Jesus. But notice at the top line, the age to come. This is God's kingdom being manifested in the world. That first vertical black line there represents the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus came, when he lived a perfect life, when he died for our sins, when he rose again and defeated death, the age to come, the age of God's people living forever in glory that time of God's kingdom began. And yet what? We still live in a world affected by the fall. We still live in a world where there is spiritual opposition. And so we live between the times. We live while this present evil age is ending, yet we also live at the beginning of the age to come. And so it is already Jesus' victory is present in our life, but not yet have we seen the end of evil and the end of suffering and the end of death. 
And so when you're in the middle of opposition and you're in the middle of suffering and you don't know how you're going to make it through, remember, you live between the times. God's power is at work in your life, and yet there will be opposition. And so we face temporary warfare. And then the second and final point this morning is that being a Christian means eternal worship. So we face temporary warfare, but there's also the idea of eternal worship. When we are facing difficulty, when we are facing suffering, one of the most powerful things that we can do is worship the Lord. One of the ladies that worked for me when I was in New Orleans working at the seminary, one of the ladies that worked in the office there, was going through a very difficult time. She had gotten into a relationship, and this relationship had gone downhill in a very bad way. And, and she was just facing all kinds of problems because of what was happening there. And it kind of reached a climax where she was in some, some major danger, to, to put it lightly. And, and this relationship was falling apart on her. And that night, she was scheduled to go and sing as a part of a choir at this local church. And she said... I can't go. I cannot go and worship the Lord in the middle of this opposition, in the middle of this suffering. Yet, as we started to talk about it, she realized that the most powerful way that she could resist Satan's influence in her life at that moment was to do exactly that. It was to go to this church and to be involved in musical worship to the Lord. And to say, I'm not going to allow Satan to hold me down. I'm not going to allow this opposition to hold me down. I am going to respond in worship because God is worthy. If you're a music person and you are facing suffering and facing difficulty, one of the ways you know that that suffering is getting to you is when the music turns off in your house and you're no longer worshiping the Lord with all your heart. Or if you're a person who loves the outdoors, and you're facing suffering, and you're facing difficulty, one of the ways that we know that it got to us is when we're no longer going outdoors, and we're no longer doing those things that bring freedom and joy into our lives that God has given us. We were made to worship, to say, God, you are worthy of all glory, and all honor, and all praise, and even if I'm in the middle of a temporary war right now. Even if I'm facing opposition and suffering, I will still worship you. The best illustration that I know for this is the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Now, Revelation is one of these books that it causes confusion and it causes worry. If you read Revelation and you come away confused and worried, you've misread Revelation. Revelation shouldn't cause confusion, it should cause comfort. And, and it shouldn't cause worry, it should cause worship. The book of Revelation was written to a group of people who were facing persecution, who were facing opposition. And all of the strange imagery in Revelation, all of the things that are going on in that book that we get confused about and don't know what, what's going on, the whole book is designed to show these people facing persecution that God is still in control. And that even though that they are facing this battle, he has won the war. The war is already won. That he is victorious through Jesus Christ over all sin and over all opposition and over all death. And that he is going to bring healing and restoration to his people. 
And so don't read Revelation and get caught up in numbers and images and pictures and all of these things. Read Revelation and remind yourself that God comforts his people in the midst of suffering and that God has already won the war. And so our response to that will be worship. And here's what we're going to do this morning. After I pray in just a minute, we're going to have an extended time of worship. Corey is going to lead us through, through two different songs during our response time. And if you're facing suffering, if you're facing opposition, if you're facing this spiritual warfare in your life right now, living between the times, one of the most powerful things that you can do is gather together with God's people simply to worship the Lord. Not worried about when you're going to leave, not worried about what it sounds like, not worried about what's going on. Simply saying, I will respond to opposition. I will respond to warfare with worship. And if you need someone to pray for you, Peggy's going to be down here at the front. I'll be down here at the front. We'll have others that will be down here. Do not go through that opposition. Do not go through that suffering on your own, saying no one cares, no one knows. There are people who know, and there are people who care. And even if we cannot understand your situation exactly, we will be there to love you and to point you to Christ, who has defeated all sin, who has defeated all evil, who has defeated all death. So I want to pray for us, and then we are going to respond in a time of worship.